out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing. There is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make sense. Hi everyone. Today I speak with my friend Milani. I met Milani about 18 months ago, just when she came into recovery again. Milani is an emergency medical doctor and has gone through many challenges since she got clean. She did not allow any of these things to derail her spiritual journey though. This girl is made of steel on the outside, but is beautifully soft and squishy on the inside. She is doing a lot of work on ending the stigma of addiction, as well as on educating the medical fraternity on the disease of addiction. Both things, I believe, are essential. So I tip my hat to this amazing friend of mine. Find her website at www.drmerasmus-recovery.com Please follow and support her. This podcast is supported by The First Layer, the 12-step workbook on working through the 12 steps in any addiction in 21 sessions. There is also a 24-day step coaching and counseling program available based on The First Layer. For more information in this regard, go to www.freddy.org.za and click through from the notices at the right of the homepage. This is Milani's story. Sit back and enjoy. Milani, welcome to Meet Me in the Field. How are you doing? I am fabulous, Freddie. <laughs> Fucking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very, very happy to hear that. I've been trying to get you to sit in this chair since September or October last year. Yep, that's true. Huh? <laughs> because it was before your wedding and we said that when you get back from honeymoon, we'll chat. And it is now June. Six months later. <laughs> well, rather late than never, hey? I guess so. So I'm very, very happy to have this chat and I'm so happy to hear that you are well. Thank you. Now... As I said, I don't have questions, so it's now that the time of the chat where I start panicking. Oh my God, where's this going, where's this going, where's this going? I want to go to you being a physician. Okay. And you've got a website where you help people. Am I correct? Uh, my website is more to do with Putting myself out there. It's more something to introduce myself. Basically, it's in twofold, saying that I am obviously a general practitioner, but also that I'm a recovering addict and that my field of interest lies within addiction. I think it is important that people can associate an addict also with a doctor. Yeah. Because, believe me, there's not a lot of sympathy out there from the medical world towards mm. addiction. And um, people don't get help from the medical fraternity. So I think it's quite refreshing that people can see that there is help. Have you had slack from the medical fraternity for doing this? Luckily not, I must not say. Not at all? No, luckily not. And support? Pretty much. More support than slack? Much more. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's good to know. Yeah. But um, I must say, my greatest support actually has not come so much from my colleagues per se. It's more from the the allied health professionals, more people like the social workers and the psychologists and so forth. Because they actually work with the addict and they're the ones that see the desperation, feel the, oh my God. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've realized that general 
doctor actually tried to shield away from, from addiction, yeah. which is actually a sad thing. There's lots of counsellors as well. I've got people who studied with me who just say, I don't see addicts. Yeah. I, I can't identify with them. I don't know. We, I, I can't. I just can't do it. Yeah, you know, when I um, relapsed and I reported myself to the Health Professionals Council, one of the criteria for me to continue practicing was that I had to, uh, I had to see a clinical psychologist who had to submit three monthly reports. And I think I contacted something like five or six clinical psychologists. Obviously, I had to say that I'm a recovering addict and this is what I need. And five or six of them turned me down because I was an addict. They oh, were my just, word. just not willing to, to, to actually come in contact with it. And you are an untouchable. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the one who should not be named. <laughs> Exactly. You can see I'm busy reading Harry Bold, Potter at the Bold moment the again. Oh, you can't name it, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> You're bringing a curse over our house. <laughs> I'm so lucky too. My supervisor is a clinical psychologist who worked in the addiction field for a long time. So I feel extremely held. I feel so, so, so safe with, with, with her. So it's a wonderful process. You are from the Eastern Cape. No, I'm actually from Joburg originally. I should, yeah. have, I should know this. Yeah, Surah Mutgamora. The Pretoria girl. A Joburg. Joburg girl. Yeah, Where even worse. Western suburbs. Rudabert. Yeah, we discussed I must this. know this, yeah. Yeah, you went to which high school? Furentu. Yeah. The person that I interviewed before the person before you was also from Rudabert. Okay. And how old are you? I oh, am, God. No, that I question. Mind. I don't mind at all. I am now... 44. I had to think about it. So you're very old? much the same age. Did you matriculate in Rudapur? Uh Florida worries. You'll probably know her. Oh, okay. Helena <laughs> Wagener. So, Can't say that uh, rings a bell. Okay. Anyway, so... And you are Afrikaans. That's right. Did you grow up with the Ingekak? Oh, pretty much. So. <laughs> don't we all when we're Afrikaans? You don't have a bloody choice, do you? No, unfortunately. So I can very clearly hear that the church didn't resonate with you. At all. I was so happy. Right from the start? Right from a young age? Or, or did you I at least at some stage? No, I was never comfortable in that establishment. Up until today, I have a severe adverse... I hate any form of organized religion. To break out in a rash. The, the, I, I do. <laughs> like like an adverse reaction, as if you yes. took something that you're highly allergic no, to. No, I'm like, it's an anaphylactic reaction, actually. <laughs> Shock. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, like, you know, it's like that whole ritual thing, someone standing there and like shouting and you made you feel guilty. No. So that's your feeling as well, the shouting and, and, and the, the guilt. The guilt, so all the time. For me, that was so, so prevalent. No, I must say, you know, the, I, I could not wait until I could. And, you know, funny enough, like our parents wanted us to feel that. They made us go to church, like wanting us to feel that guilt. It's like, it's like the strangest <laughs> thing. <laughs> and that's why a lot of addiction theories center around the, the addiction to guilt. That we, that we get so used to that, that, that feeling of guilt that we actually want to stay trapped in it. 
And that's why if we want to break the addiction cycle, we need to break the, the, the guilt cycle. But, you know, I think that's very difficult because I think guilt has been ingrained into our minds for so long. So let's say, take me, for example, 44 years. How do you break that cycle that's been ingrained for 44 years? You know, it's like it's like a difficult thing. And so that means that our whole cycle starts from the day of birth, actually. Mm-hmm. I'm more and more becoming a, is that right, a proponent, a, an activist? Mm-hmm. Oh, let's use activist rather, terrible being Afrikaans, um, <laughs> an activist for the theory that we as, as children inherit possibly a guilt, we can really call it the guilt persona from our parents because they got it from their parents and they got it from their parents. So we end up with, with, with a generational Guilt in our systems. I wouldn't go quite as far as saying we inherit it. I just think that. Oh God! Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I thought I forgot. That I was speaking to an MD, but you, you get the message. It's, yeah, I know. I mean, that is how they were taught, and you know, generations before them. So I mean, you know, you can't also blame them. That's yeah. th- that's how they were taught. So they probably didn't think that they were doing anything wrong. Yes. And you know, to that extent, perhaps it's good that we addicts. Because we saw the light, we can we can actually break the cycle. We can break the cycle. That's something really, really amazing about people coming into recovery is they make that choice to break that cycle. Mm. And that's also nice in terms of my my new book that I'm writing, a twelve step guide for non addicts, where there's anything in our lives where we can choose to break the cycle. It doesn't have to be addiction, low self esteem. When I started working for myself, God, I'm talking as if this is my interview. When I started working for myself, I had to make a choice. Is, am I going to stay stuck in low self-esteem or am I going to, to break that, to break the cycle of... And I, I realized that my parents probably grew up with low self-esteem and they probably got it from their parents. We were just never taught that, you know what, you're awesome, you can do this. Yeah. The message is invariably that you can't do this. A little bit off the topic, just to some extent, you know, talking about your book got me thinking actually and as I see it in my in my work on a daily basis you know we always attribute addiction to the drug and I've actually come to realize it is not the substance at all it is it is actually the behavior Mm. that is addiction the substance is a secondary thing that, that comes that just comes along there are a lot of people out there who does not abuse a substance per se, but they're still addicts. Yeah. They display exactly addictive behavior, <laughs> yes. but yet they're not put into a 12-step program or yeah. anything. So, or you get know, a classified stamp on their forehead. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> as an addict. But you're quite right in the sense that you know, you, you, I see it in my medical practice. They come in, they've got this recurrent addiction behavior, addiction behavior, and something happens in their life. You know, some other crisis, you know, the death of a family member, um, them losing their, their jobs or anything, anything profoundly, and that can break a cycle. And, you know, that can be their rock bottom. Mm that we can experience as addicts as hitting a rock bottom. So can the so-called non-addict. Yeah. 
and that can change their behavior. Yeah, so that that was quite a profound thing for me, especially with this new book that you're writing that I'm so excited about. And I'm so promoting your book, you don't even want to know. <laughs> oh my God, no pressure. No, no pressure at all. But the thing is, you know, I've been looking and I've, 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 become, so, I've become so aware of actually the need in the community for people to live a 12-step program. Mm. And um, we must just try to get the people to buy into it that it is not just for addicts. Absolutely. You finished school in Johannesburg, and where did you do your medical studies? Uh, I went to Pretoria University. Okay. Yeah. Ducks. Ducks. We used to say it wrong. (laughs) Yuppie (laughs) Ducky. And entering medical school and, and dealing with, it's going to sound dramatic now, but dealing with life and death on a daily basis. I suppose from, from what year? From your fourth year, when you start doing practical and those yeah, type of things, those become kind of real, real realities for you. Does one experience a sense of, what's the word I'm looking for? Existential crisis, spiritual questioning, once you get confronted with the whole life and death thing, or is it just another bloody day of studies? You know, I think that that really depends on from person to person. Some people, people who are religious, can see meaning into life from a religious point of view. From my experience, most of my colleagues in the medical fraternity are not religious, funny enough. It is, it's a science thing. And, and, you know, that is where, if you look at pure religion, your religious background, if you have a background, it, it's, a, it's like in direct conflict with the science that you taught. Because all of us, you know, you taught on cellular level and how a cell's life cycle work and it's cell death and all of that. And you can't bring it into a religious concept at all. From my point of view, if I think of life and death, it sounds horrible, but I, I dissociate. If, generally speaking, if a patient dies, it's a patient dies. It's like, it's a failure of a resuscitation. It's, we, we make, we objectify things. Yeah. And it's just a bloody day at work. Yeah. But funny enough, you know, don't, don't underestimate it. There, there are, there are the, peop- uh, the, the one or two patients that stick with you. And, you know, it, it, that messes up your mind. It, it sticks within your subconscious. And slowly over a period of time, that works on you. So, so does it get easier to give that message? It never gets easier. You know, each patient dies is unique. You always have to consider the, the patient's situation when, when they died. You know, what was the last couple of minutes like for that patient? Was there resuscitation involved? Was it an adult? Was it an elderly patient, a child? You know, what type of family are you going to confront? Is it going to be um, parents? Is it going to be siblings? Is it going to be children of uh, a patient who's passed away? 
So it's all those factors that you need to consider. Yeah. And, you know, it's never easy to, to actually give that final verdict of someone has died because you, you know that the minute you, sit, uh, you say that words, their lives will change. There's a full stop behind those words. And, and it's never going to be the same yeah. again. Well, has anybody ever been really angry at you? when saying those words, like I mean they want to take it out on you, for instance? Yes, th they do, you, you know, especially if, in, I can remember actually as, a, I think I was either in my houseman year or community service year, year in the Alderberg, working at Alderberg Hospital, it was a motor vehicle accident and uh, one, a child died, um, a young, young adult, but the mother came to the hospital I mean, it was not our fault or anything. Mother was obviously shocked. And it is within the nature. They, they need to blame someone. Mm. And, you know, we couldn't save the child. That's part of the job. So what's the answer? Valium injection. <laughs> <laughs> no, you aren't. <laughs> so what I'm hearing is that the practice of medicine and the confrontation of life and death did not bring any questions around spirituality up for you. As in, where do I stand in the bigger existential thing in terms of life and, life and death and the concept of I might actually be, think of myself as being able to call the concept of life and death. No, I must say, you know, prior to me coming into recovery, I didn't give spirituality much thought at all. I lived my life. I knew that I was not religious. Um, I didn't, like, think about anything like that. And except for that, I lived my life in a scientific world. My life was purely scientific. Okay. And, and that was me. I lived my life, live fast, die young, have a beautiful corpse. And then I didn't <laughs> die young, and then it was all a fucker. <laughs> and, and a beautiful corpse. <laughs> <A> beautiful corpse. <laughs> it was such a shock one day when I realized, oh my God, it's too late. <laughs> they called, called something an existential crisis. That was when it happened for me. You are also, if I can go that personal, you also suffer from depression. Yes, I do. Okay. And well, that, that's what my psychiatrist say. Ah. <laughs> and your med... Do you take medication for it? Yes, I do. Okay. And do you feel better because of it? That's a difficult question, isn't it? And I don't think so. I, I know if I don't take my pills in the morning, I'm fucked for it. <laughs> Not immediately, but... You know, Freddie, where do you draw the line? Let me put it this way. I've been on antidepressants for quite a while. I know, if I look at it from a medical way, then um, you can say, listen, you need to take your, your antidepressant because it increases your neurotransmitter and, and by stopping it, your neurotransmitter will drop and all of that. Um, I also know that if I don't take my um, antidepressant, then I get withdrawal side effects. So I take it okay. because it makes me feel real shitty if I don't take okay. it. But in reality, my life has changed so much. 
I am a happy person. What makes me happy, I don't know. It might be my tablets. It might be that I'm more at peace with myself. Look, I don't want to stop my medication because God knows my psychiatrist will have a heart attack. <laughs> but I've often wondered, you know, if I should stop taking my antidepressant, being in such a vast different space that I am now, you know, will I not just be a happier person? Yeah. But yes, to answer your, your question on a black and white basis, yes, I am supposedly an, uh, depressed and I am on antidepressants. I've got two questions. Is addiction a mental health issue? I got Funny asked that enough. question on that podcast that I told you earlier where I felt if I was writing an oral exam. You know, <laughs> funny enough, as, as I was driving here, I was, I was actually thinking about that exact question that you're asking me now. You know, when we come into recovery, you have to get your head around the fact that addiction is a disease. Now, being a doctor... That was a very difficult ah. thing for me to get my head around. I had my statements, medical dictionary out, trying to figure out, according to a medical dictionary, what is a disease. And I just couldn't get that like lacquer to fit <laughs> in. It um, just didn't sit comfortably. Because somehow we all want to say, you know, I can just will myself to change and not to take that drug, even though we know we can't. And then I thought to myself, you know, it is more a, a mental health thing, because that's how I can define it for myself as a disease. It is something that I've got no control over. It's... For me, it's not a physical illness in the sense that I have a broken arm or a leg, no. but it's something in my mind that's not right. Yes. So in that way, I, I, I classified as a mental disease. But having known that, I also went to a lot of psychiatrists that couldn't fix me. Mm. <laughs> Let's not go there. <laughs> I can write a book about that. <laughs> the next question I want to ask you is, your website, mm -hmm. does that also cover the depression side or does it, is it mostly about addiction? No, my, um, my website basically has two aspects. The one is about general medicine and the other one about addiction. The general medicine side just basically says where I studied, which year I graduated, what my qualifications are as a doctor... Um, that type of thing has to do a little bit about my my own private practice, which I'm not very active on in, in the moment. And then the other aspect is about recovery, where I basically admit to being a recovering addict and where I invite people that if they have any form of need to be in contact with someone, that can help them that they are free to contact me okay what's your web address it is www.drmerasmus-recovery.com okay you've tried recovery before and you were clean for quite some time 
and then you had a disastrous relapse, which <coughs> lasted for a while, which brought you into recovery a year and a half ago, back into recovery mm-hmm. again. What's the difference between the first recovery and, and this one? One word, behavior. <laughs> okay. That's it. You know what? I wasn't in recovery the first time. So you were abstinent the first time? I was abstinent. That That is the difference. The To be truly in recovery is to abstain from the substance and to change your behavior. Yes. Abstinence plus change equals recovery. Yeah. As clear as E equals MC squared. That's it. Einstein Einstein will be so proud. Coming from a social scientist, I'm so proud I remembered that. For a minute I was getting panicky. Oh fuck, I'm not going to remember. (laughs) But I did. Because I'm clever. (laughs) I'm learning that. And not a young corpse. (laughs) I'm learning that from um, Melissa Melissa Peer. Uh-huh. Melissa Pierre, where we need to stop telling ourselves things like I'm not intelligent or the one that she uses that I do so often is I've got a bad memory. I say so often I've got a bad memory and what she says is don't keep on telling yourself I've got a because fucking bad memory. Brain, because brain will believe yes, it. Yes, exactly. So s- start telling yourself this, oops, I just forgot that fact. <laughs> so, oopsie. yeah, oopsie, oopsie, kadoopsie, I forgot, I forgot what E equals a, but I remember that because I've got a good memory, that's why. <laughs> I see, and actually you're very clever. Yes, I think I'm very clever as well. Yeah. Not in a bad, arrogant way, in humble. <laughs> <laughs> so, you came into recovery and you made a decision to change your behavior because that, that's what you realized that you needed to do. That's right. And then the word God jumps at you uh-huh. every <laughs> in how many of the steps. I suppose I should know exactly how many steps. It's really not important. How did that make you feel? <laughs> Someone on you. How did the word God make you feel when you read the steps? <laughs> that, that's my counseling voice. Do you like it? <laughs> oh, it's your sexy husband voice. <laughs> no, that's my compassionate voice. You know, I was so anxious. (laughs) I was so anxious. I could do step one. And a lot of people have said to me, step one is the most difficult. That was easy for me because God knows. God. (laughs) 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 I have power knows that I knew that I had a problem. Step one for me was easy. I'm fucked. (laughs) Step one, full stop, done. (laughs) But I can recall telling someone, I'm never going to be able to do the 12 steps because... I cannot relate to God. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. So, no, I was, I was petrified. I, I didn't know I was going to approach this, this whole God thing. It, I, I was terrified. And I walked that path with you, and I actually can't recall. Recall what? Recall how difficult it was. Because I, I, I hid it from you. <laughs> I was a sponsor. I am a sponsor. <laughs> and she hid it from me. I went to cry all, all so what happened because you're still clean so something must be working for you you know what I did is for a long time initially I took a pen and I scratched out the word God in my step workbook and I wrote in high power oh cool so I physically removed the word God because every time my my mind my eyes saw God, I got panicky, and I had to you read. Got panicky. 
a god mannequin. I had to, I had to trick my mind into not seeing the word God and thinking about the Dominion and Saitoga shouting off the council, but to think of a loving eye. Oh, cool! And that is the only way I could do it. Even though they said a God of your understanding. Yeah. I you only understand. had one understanding up and up until yeah. that phase, and that was not a good. That three-letter word yeah. fucked my my, my, my <laughs> brain over. <laughs> okay, so and the serenity prayer. Did you start it by saying God grant me serenity? No. Yeah, even, so many people skip that. Just say grant me serenity, and that's okay. Just, even up until today, I love the serenity prayer at work at my at my desk. I printed the serenity prayer. I've got it put up on my desk where I see it. Every day, I left God out. Okay. So you clung to the concept of a higher power, very much like I did as well. Yeah. And today, do you have a concept of what your higher power is? I do. For me, you know, a lot of people, I know you can name your higher power. You, I know as well, have a visual aspect of your higher power. For me... It is more feeling. Okay. So, I know when I get that feeling that my my power is with me. It's a good feeling. It's a good. <laughs> it's a great feeling. It's a great feeling. It is a great feeling, hey? yeah. And it's so weird because I sometimes go on my knees and think, Freddie, you are praying to something that you created in your own head. Then I think that's okay. <laughs> you know what, Freddie? I read today about our higher power. I, I, I read an article about addicts and their higher power. And they said, it's all right to pray to something that you created in your own head. Because the God that we created as kids when we were in an organized religion, the idea that we have of that God that is looking down at us, going to punish us, is also something that we created in our minds. So at that stage, we pray to something that we created in our minds. Okay. So why is it wrong to create a loving God now? Yeah. So nice, nice That one. was quite profound to me. Yeah. I know through our journey together that you are doing amazing work in terms of being a physician and working not with recovering addicts necessarily, but through your work, you do carry the message of recovery very, very clearly to so many people, even to, to, to patients. Who, and you, you're an emergency physician. An emergency physician. You, mm -hmm. you choose to work obscure flipping hours. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite sad, isn't it? <laughs> I'm it a is sad, quite. Yeah. I'm a sad individual. Yeah. <laughs> because when I got to know you, you mostly work night shifts. Is that still the case? No, I, okay, so I now work mostly day shifts. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, awesome. I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> no, me too. I can sleep in my own bed. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> you were a physician in, a, in addiction and you're now a physician in recovery. Has something changed as a physician? Yes. What? You know. This might sound very arrogant. Go for it. I know that I'm a good doctor. Awesome. I know that 
when it comes to medicine, I'm a good doctor. Prior to my recovery, that's all I was. I could go through the motions. I treated patients. I treated the disease that they had. Now, I'm still a good doctor and I treat the disease, but I treat the person as well. Oh, wow. You don't understand the amount of joy it gives me to really connect with patients on a personal level, to really feel empathy for, for people. So that's something you can now do, which you didn't you were I unable did, to do in the I, past. Uh, this this might sound crazy to you. I'm I, I'm a doctor. I hated people. <laughs> Prior to my recovery, I hated them. I loved the art of medicine and the physiology and the yeah. anatomy. I hated uh, people. After my recovery, I really enjoy people. I How can I can speak to people. I and, and you know I don't always speak to people medicine. I ask them about what's going on in their lives. And that has made all the difference. People, and that is why I think I'm so successful when it comes to my addiction message at the moment. Because patients can relate to me in as a person mm. and not as a doctor. Yeah. They can see me as a normal person and they feel comfortable talking to me and that makes a difference in patients lives mm, absolutely so even as a as an emergency doctor where you don't have a constant client base to to make that type of connection with with patients that's a gift that's definitely a gift you know but it's it's at rare moments where you've got a limited contact time where you make Deep connections with Okay, with yes. You have, to ha you have to make that moment count. You know, the thing is with emergency medicine, often that is where people are the most vulnerable. Um, <clears throat> they don't come in for elective procedures. They come in when they are in need. Yeah. And that is where they're most vulnerable. And that is where they need comfort. So to have someone that really they feel that they can relate to and can feel comfort with, I, I, I think I, I can only like really attribute my recovery and, and the presence of my high power to that because I have that serenity now. Yeah. So. That is awesome. And I think on that note, it is perfect note to end this conversation because it just ends at the perfect spot. I have that serenity now. So, Melani, thank you so much. Thank it you, Freddie. It was absolutely worth the wait. I'm very, very <laughs> chuffed that we got to have this conversation. I'm so pleased. Thank and you. And enjoy the rest of your day, your off day, Nogal. Yeah. To come for your off day and spend it here, a significant amount of it here with me, I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you very much. No problem. There is so much more I wanted to discuss. But the conversation did not flow in that direction and it skewed my mind completely. <laughs> but it is what it is and I'm grateful for the time we got to spend together. With Milani's obscure working hours in the past, it was really difficult to pin it down for a chat. So maybe we shall be able to discuss the challenges of long-distance parenthood, 
medical board's registration as an addict and a new marriage with her next time. If you want to know more about what I do, please feel free to connect with me on my website, which is www.freddy.org.za, or find him on Facebook at either Meet Me in the Field or Freddy Counselor, or on Twitter at, at RensburgFreddy or Instagram at Freddy Counselor. Remember that Freddy is always spelt with an IE at the end. I want to thank Milani for her time and energy in talking to Meet Me in the Field. Thank you for listening. Be safe. Bye.